Chapter Nine of Home Life in Colonial Days by Alice Morse Earl. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wool culture and spinning, with a postscript on cotton. The art of spinning was an honorable occupation for women as early as the ninth century and it was so universal that it furnished a legal title by which an unmarried woman is known to this day spinster is the only one of all her various womanly titles that survives webster Shepster, Litster, Brewster, and Baxter are obsolete. The occupations are also obsolete, save those indicated by Shepster and Baxter, that is, the cutting out of cloth and baking of bread these are the only duties among them all that she still performs the wool industry dates back to prehistoric man the patience care and skill involved in its manufacture have ever exercised a potent influence on civilization it is therefore interesting and gratifying to note the intelligent eagerness of our first colonists for wool culture it was quickly and proudly noted of towns and of individuals as a proof of their rapid and substantial progress that they could carry on any of the steps of the cloth industry good judge sewell piously exulted when brother moody started a successful fulling mill in boston johnson in his wonder-working providence tells with pride that by sixteen fifty four new englanders have a fulling mill and cause their little ones to be very diligent in spinning cotton wool many of them having been clothiers in england this has ever seemed to me one of the fortunate conditions that tended to the marked success of the massachusetts bay colony that so many had been clothiers or cloth workers in england or had come from shires in england where wool was raised and cloth made and hence knew the importance of the industry as well as its practical workings 
as early as sixteen forty three the author of new england's first fruits wrote quote, they are making linens fustians dimities and look immediately to woolens from their own sheep unquote. Johnson estimated the number of sheep in the colony of Massachusetts about 1644 as 3,000. Soon the great wheel was whirring in every New England house. The raising of sheep was encouraged in every way. They were permitted to graze on the commons it was forbidden to send them from the colony. No sheep under two years old could be killed to sell. If a dog killed a sheep, the dog's owner must hang him and pay double the cost of the sheep. All persons who were not employed in other ways as single women, girls, and boys were required to spin. Each family must contain one spinner. These spinners were formed into divisions or squadrons of ten persons. Each division had a director. There were no drones in this hive neither the wealth nor high station of parents excused children from this work thus all were leveled to one kind of labor and by this leveling all were also elevated to independence when the open expression of revolt came the homespun industries seemed a firm rock for the foundation of liberty. People joined in agreements to eat no lamb or mutton, that thus sheep might be preserved, and to wear no imported woolen cloth. They gave prizes for spinning and weaving. Great encouragement was given in Virginia in early days to the raising and manufacture of wool. The assembly estimated that five children not over thirteen years of age could by their work readily spin and weave enough to keep thirty persons clothed. Six pounds of tobacco was paid to anyone bringing to the county courthouse where he resided a yard of homespun woolen cloth made wholly in his family. Twelve pounds of tobacco were offered for reward for a dozen pair of woolen hose knitted at home. Slaves were taught to spin, and wool wheels and wool cards are found by the 18th century on every inventory of planters' house furnishings. The Pennsylvania settlers were early in the encouragement of wool manufacture. The present industry of hosiery and knit goods, long known as Germantown goods, began with the earliest settlers of that Pennsylvania town. 
stocking weavers were there certainly as early as seventeen twenty three and it is asserted there were knitting machines at any rate one mac the son of the founder of the dunkers made leg stockings and gloves rev andrew burnaby who was in germantown in seventeen fifty nine told of a great manufacture of stockings at that date in seventeen seventy seven it was said that a hundred germantown stocking weavers were out of employment through the war still it was not till eighteen fifty that patents for knitting machines were taken out there among the manufacturers of the province of pennsylvania in sixteen ninety eight were druggets sergers and coverlets and among the registered tradesmen were dyers fullers comb-makers card-makers weavers and spinners the swedish colony as early as sixteen seventy three had the wives and daughters quote, employing themselves in spinning wool and flax and many in weaving unquote. the fairs instituted by william penn for the encouragement of domestic manufactures and trade in general which were fostered by franklin and continued till seventeen seventy five briskly stimulated wool and flax manufacture in seventeen sixty five and in seventeen seventy five rebellious philadelphians banded together with promises not to eat or suffer to be eaten in their families any lamb or meat of the mutton kind in this the philadelphia butchers patriotic and self-sacrificing all join a wool factory was built and fitted up and an appeal made to the women to save the state in a month four hundred wool spinners were at work but the war cut off the supply of raw material and the manufacture languished in seventeen ninety after the war fifteen hundred sets of irons for spinning wheels were sold from one shop and mechanics everywhere were making looms new yorkers were not behindhand in industry lord cornbury wrote home to england in seventeen o five that he quote, had seen surge made upon long island that any man might wear they make very good linen for common use as for woollen i think they have brought that to too great perfection unquote. in cornberry's phrase too great perfection may be found the key for all the extraordinary and apparently stupid prohibitions and restrictions placed by the mother country on colonial wool manufacture the growth of the woolen industry in any colony was regarded at once by england with jealous eyes 
wool was the pet industry and principal staple of great britain and well it might be for until the reign of henry the eighth english garments from head to foot were wholly of wool even the shoes wool was also received in england as currency thomas fuller said quote, the wealth of our nation is folded up in broadcloth unquote. therefore the crown aided by the governors of the provinces sought to maintain england's monopoly by regulating and reducing the culture of wool in america through prohibiting the exportation to england of any american wool or woolen materials in sixteen ninety nine all vessels sailing to england from the colonies was prohibited taking on board any wool woolfells shortling mosslings woodflocks worsteds bays bay or woolen yarn cloth serge kersey says fridges druggets shalloons etc and an arbitrary law was passed prohibiting the transportation of home-made woolens from one american province to another these laws were never fully observed and never checked the culture and manufacture of wool in this country hence our colonies were spared the cruel fate by which england's same policy paralyzed and obliterated in a few years the glorious wool industry of ireland luckily for us it is further across the atlantic ocean than across st george's channel the all-wool goods a yard wide which we so easily purchase to-day meant to the colonial dame or daughter the work of many weeks and months from the time when the fleeces were first given to her deft hands fleeces had to be opened with care and have all pitched or tarred locks dag locks brands and feltings cut out these cuttings were not wasted but were spun into coarse yarn the white locks were carefully tossed and separated and tied into net bags with tallies to be dyed another homely saying dyed in the wool showed a process of much skill blue in all shades was the favorite color and was dyed with indigo so great was the demand for this dye stuff that indigo peddlers traveled over the country selling it madder cochineal and logwood dyed beautiful reds the bark of red oak or hickory made pretty shades of brown and yellow various flowers growing on the farm could be used for dyes the flower of the goldenrod when pressed of its juice mixed with indigo and added to alum made a beautiful green
the juice of the pokeberry boiled with alum made crimson dye and a violet juice from the petals of the iris or fleur de luce that blossomed in june meadows gave a delicate light purple tinge to white wool the bark of the sassafras was used for dyeing yellow or orange color and the flowers and leaves of the balsam also fustic and copperas gave yellow dyes a good black was obtained by boiling woolen cloth with a quantity of leaves of the common field sorrel then boiling again with logwood and copperas in the south there were scores of flowers and leaves that could be used for dyes during the revolutionary war one enterprising south carolinian got a guinea a pound for a yellow dye he made from the sweet leaf or horse laurel the leaves and berries of gallberry bush made a good black much used by hatters and weavers the root of the barberry gave wool a beautiful yellow as did the leaves of the devil's bit the petals of jerusalem artichoke and st john's wort dyed yellow yellow root is a significant name and reveals its use oak walnut or maple bark dyed brown often the woven cloth was dyed not the wool the next process was carding the wool was first greased with rape oil or melted swine's grease which had to be thoroughly worked in about three pounds of grease were put into ten pounds of wool wool cards were rectangular pieces of thin board with a simple handle on the back or at the side to this board was fastened a smaller rectangle of strong leather set thick with slightly bent wire teeth like a coarse brush the carter took one card with her left hand and resting it on her knee drew a tuft of wool across it several times until a sufficient quantity of fibre had been caught upon the wire teeth she then drew the second wool card which had to be warmed across the first several times until the fibres were brushed parallel by all these tummings then by a deft and catchy motion the wool was rolled or carded into small fleecy rolls which were then ready for spinning wool combs were shaped like the letter t with about thirty long steel teeth from ten to eighteen inches long set at right angles with the top of the t the wool was carefully placed on one comb and with careful strokes the other comb laid the long staple smooth for hard twisted spinning it was tedious and slow work and a more skilful operation than carding and the combs had to be kept constantly heated 
but no machine combing ever equaled hand combing there was a good deal of waste in this combing that is large clumps of tangled wool called noil were combed out they were not really wasted we may be sure by our frugal ancestors but were spun into coarse yarn an old author says quote, the action of spinning must be learned by practice not by relation Unquote. sung by the poets the grace and beauty of the occupation has ever shared praise with its utility wool spinning was truly one of the most flexible and alert series of movements in the world and to its varied and graceful poses our grandmothers may owe part of the dignity of carriage that was so characteristic of them the spinner stood slightly leaning forward lightly poised on the ball of the left foot with her left hand she picked up from the platform of the wheel a long slender roll of the soft carded wool about as large round as the little finger and deftly wound the end of the fibres on the point of the spindle she then gave a gentle motion to the wheel with a wooden peg held in her right hand and seized with the left the roll at exactly the right distance from the spindle to allow for one quote, drawing unquote. then the hum of the wheel rose to a sound like the echo of wind she stepped backward quickly one two three steps holding high the long yarn as it twisted and quivered suddenly she glided forward with even graceful stride and let the yarn wind on the swift spindle another pinch of the wool roll a new turn of the wheel and da capo the wooden peg held by the spinner deserves a short description it served the purpose of an elongated finger and was called a driver wheel peg etc it was about nine inches long an inch or so in diameter and at about an inch from the end was slightly grooved in order that it might surely catch the spoke and thus propel the wheel it was a good day's work for a quick active spinner to spin six skeins of yarn a day it was estimated that to do that with her quick backward and forward steps she walked over twenty miles the yarn might be wound directly upon the wooden spindle as it was spun or at the end of the spindle might be placed a spool or brooch which twisted with the revolving spindle and held the new spun yarn this brooch was usually simply a stiff roll of paper a corn cob or a roll of corn husk when the ball of yarn was as large as the brooch would hold the spinner placed wooden pegs in certain holes in the spokes of her spinning wheel and tied the end of the yarn to one peg then she took off the belt of her wheel and whirred 
the big wheel swiftly round thus winding the yarn on the pegs into hanks or clues two yards in circumference which were afterwards tied with a loop of yarn into knots of forty threads while seven of these knots made a skein the clock reel was used for winding yarn also a triple reel the yarn might be wound from the spindle into skeins in another way by using a hand reel an implement which really did exist in every farmhouse though the dictionaries are ignorant of it as they are of its universal folk name ninny noddy this is fortunately preserved in an everyday domestic riddle ninny noddy ninny noddy two heads and one body the three pieces of these ninny noddies were set together at curious angles and are here shown rather than described in words holding the reel in the left hand by seizing the central body or rod the yarn was wound from end to end of the reel by an odd waving wobbling motion into knots and skeins of the same size as by the first process described one of these nitty noddies was owned by Nabby Marshall of Deerfield, who lived to be one hundred and four years old. The other was brought from Ireland in 1733 by Hugh Maxwell, father of the revolutionary patriot Colonel Maxwell. As it was at a time of English prohibitions and restrictions of American manufacturers, this ninny naughty as an accessory and promoter of colonial wool manufacture was smuggled into the country sometimes the woolen yarn was spun twice especially if a close hard twisted thread was desired to be woven into a stiff wiry cloth when there were two the first spinning was called a roving the single spinning was usually deemed sufficient to furnish yarn for knitting where softness and warmth were the desired requisites it was the pride of a good spinner to spin the finest yarn and one mistress mary priggy spun a pound of wool into fifty hanks of eighty-four thousand yards in all nearly forty-eight miles if the yarn was to be knitted it had to be washed and cleansed the wife of colonel john may a prominent man in boston wrote in her diary for one day quote, a large kettle of yarn to attend upon lucretia and self rinse scour through many waters get out dry attend to bring in do up and sort a uh, hundred and ten score of yarn this with baking and ironing then went to hackling flax unquote. it should be remembered that all those bleaching processes the wringing out and rinsing in various waters 
were far more wearisome than they would be to-day for the water had to be carried laboriously in pails and buckets and drawn with pumps and well sweeps there were no pipes and conduits happy the household that had a running brook near the kitchen door of course all these operations and manipulations usually occupied many weeks and months but they could be accomplished in a much shorter time when president knott of union college and his brother samuel the famous preacher were boys on a stony farm in connecticut one of the brothers needed a new suit of clothes and as the father was sick there was neither money nor wool in the house the mother sheared some half-grown fleece from her sheep and in less than a week the boy wore it as clothing the shivering and generous sheep were protected by wrappings of braided straw during the revolution it is said that in a day and a night a mother and her daughters in townsend massachusetts sheared a black and a white sheep carded from the fleece a gray wool spun wove cut and made a suit of clothes for a boy to wear off to fight for liberty the wool industry easily furnished home occupation to an entire family often by the bright firelight in the early evening every member of the household might be seen at work on the various stages of wool manufacture or some of its necessary adjuncts and varied and cheerful industrial sounds fill the room the old grandmother at light and easy work is carding the wool into fleecy rolls seated next the fire for as the ballad says she was old and saw right dimly the mother stepping as lightly as one of her girls spins the rolls into woolen yarn on the great wheel the oldest daughter sits at the clock reel whose continuous buzz and occasional click mingles with the humming rise and fall of the wool wheel and the irritating scratch scratch of the cards a little girl at a small wheel is filling quills with woolen yarn for the loom not a skilled work the irregular sound shows her intermittent industry the father is setting fresh teeth in a wool card while the boys are whittling hand reels and loom spools one of the household implements used in wool manufacture the wool card deserves a short special history as well as a description in early days the leather back of the wool card was pierced with an awl by hand the wire teeth were cut off from a length of wire were slightly bent and set and clinched one by one these cards were laboriously made by many persons at home for their household use as early as sixteen sixty seven wire was made in massachusetts and its chief use was for wool cards by revolutionary times it was realized that the use of wool cards was almost the mainspring of the wool industry and one hundred pound bounty 
was offered by massachusetts for card wire made in the state from iron mine in what they called then the united american states in seventeen eighty four a machine was invented by an american which would cut and bend thirty six thousand wire teeth an hour another machine pierced the leather backs this gave a new employment to women and children at home and some spending money they would get boxes of the bent wire teeth and bundles of the leather backs from the factories and would set the teeth in the backs while sitting around the open fire in the evening they did this work too while visiting spending an afternoon and it was an unconscious and diverting work like knitting scholars set wool cards while studying and schoolmistresses while teaching this method of manufacture was superseded fifteen years later by a machine invented by amos whittemore which held cut and pierced the leather drew the wire from a reel cut and bent a loop tooth set it bent it fastened the leather on the back and speedily turned out a fully made card john randolph said this machine had everything but an immortal soul by this time spinning and weaving machinery began to crowd out homework and the machine-made cards were needed to keep up with the increased demand at last machines crowded into every department of cloth manufacture and after carding machines were invented in england great rollers set with card teeth they were set up in many mills throughout the united states families soon sent all their wool to these mills to be carded even when it was spun and woven at home it was sent rolled up in a homespun sheet or blanket pinned with thorns and the carded rolls ready for spinning were brought home in the same way and made a still bigger bundle which was light in weight for its size sometimes a red-cheeked farm lass would be seen riding home from the carding mill through new england woods or along new england lanes with a bundle of carded wool towering up behind her bigger than her horse of the use and manufacture of cotton i will speak very shortly our greatest cheapest most indispensable fiber is also our latest one it never formed one of the homespun industries of the colonies in fact it was never an article of extended domestic manufacture a little cotton was always used in early days for stuffing bedquilts petticoats warriors armor and similar purposes it was bought by the pound east india cotton in small quantities the seeds were picked out one by one by hand it was carded on wool cards and spun into a rather intractable yarn which was used as warp for linsey woolsey and rag carpets even in england no cotton weft no all cotton fabrics were made till after seventeen sixty 
till Hargreaves' time. Sometimes a twisted yarn was made of one thread of cotton and one of wool, which was knit into durable stockings. Cotton sewing thread was unknown in England. Pawtucket women named Wilkinson made the first cotton thread on their home spinning wheels in 1792. Cotton was planted in America, Bancroft says, in 1621, but McMaster asserts it was never seen growing here till after the Revolution, save as a garden ornament with garden flowers. This assertion seems oversweeping when Jefferson could write in a letter in 1786, the four southernmost states make a great deal of cotton. Their poor are almost entirely clothed with it in winter and summer. In winter they wear shirts of it and outer clothing of cotton and wool mixed. In summer their shirts are linen, but the outer clothing cotton. The dress of the women is almost entirely of cotton, manufactured by themselves except the richer class and even many of these were a great deal of homespun cotton it is as well manufactured as the calicoes of europe still cotton was certainly not a staple of consequence we were the last to enter the list of cotton producing countries and we have surpassed them all the difficulty of removing the seeds from the staple practically thrust cotton out of common use. In India, a primitive and cumbersome set of rollers called a churka partially cleaned India cotton. A Yankee schoolmaster, Eli Whitney, set King Cotton on a throne by his invention of the cotton gin in 1792. This comparatively simple but inestimable invention completely revolutionized cloth manufacture in England and America. It also changed general commerce, industrial development, and the social and economic order of things, for it gave new occupations and offered new modes of life to hundreds of thousands of persons. It entirely changed and cheapened our dress and altered rural life both in the north and south. A man could, by hand-picking, clean only about a pound of cotton a day. The cotton gin cleaned as much in a day as had taken the hand-picker a year to accomplish. Cotton was at once planted in vast amounts but it certainly was not plentiful till then. Whitney had never seen cotton nor cottonseed when he began to plan his invention, nor did he, even in Savannah, find cotton to experiment with until after considerable search. After the universal manufacture and use of the cotton gin, Negro women wove cotton in southern houses, sometimes spinning their own cotton thread, more frequently buying it mill-spun. But after all, this was in too small amounts to be of importance. It needed the spinning jennies and power-looms of vast mills to use up the profuse supply afforded by the gin. 
a very interesting account of the domestic manufacture of cotton in tennessee about the year eighteen fifty was written for me by mrs james stuart pilcher state regent of the daughters of the american revolution in tennessee a portion of her pleasant story reads quote, there were two looms in the loom room, and two negro women were kept busy all the time weaving. There were eight or ten others who did nothing but spin cotton and woolen thread. Others spooled and reeled it into hanks. The spinning was all done on the large wheel from the raw cotton. A corn shuck was wrapped tightly around the steel spindle, then the thread was run and spun on the shuck until it was full. Then these were reeled off into hanks of thread, then spooled on to corn cobs with holes burned through them. These were placed in an upright frame with long slender rods of hickory wood, something like a ramrod run through them. The frame held about one hundred of these cob spools. The end of the cotton thread from each spool was gathered up by an experienced warper who carried all the threads back and forth on the large warping bars. This was a difficult task. Only the brightest Negro women were warpers. The thread had been dyed before spooling, and the vari-colored cob spools could be arranged to make stripes lengthwise of the cloth and the hanks had also been dipped in a boiling hot sizing made of meal and water the warp threads were carefully taken from the bars and rolled upon the wooden beam of the loom the ends passed through the sleigh and tied the weaver then began her work the thread for the filing called the woof by the negroes was reeled from the hank on the winding blades upon small canes about four inches long which when full were placed in the wooden shuttles these women spun and wove all the clothing worn by the negroes on the plantation cotton cloth for women and men in the summertime and jeans for the men linsey woolsey for the women and children for winter all were well clothed the women taught us to spin but the weavers were cross and would not let us touch the loom for they said we broke the threads in the warp my grandmother never interfered with them when they were careful in their work we would say please make aunt rhody let me weave she answered no she is managing the loom if she is willing very well if not you must not worry her we thought it great fun to try to weave but generally had to pay aunt rhody for our meddling by giving her cake ribbons or candy the colonists were constantly trying to find new materials for spinning and also used many makeshifts parkman in his old regime tells that in the year seventeen o four when a ship was lost that was to bring cloth and wool to quebec a madame de Lipagny, one of the aristocrats of the French-Canadian colonies spun and wove coarse blankets of nettle and linden bark. Similar experiments were made by the English colonists. 
coarse thread was spun out of nettle fiber by pioneers in western new york levi beardsley in his reminiscences tells of his mother at the close of the last century in her frontier home at richfield springs weaving bags and coarse garments from the nettles which grew so rankly everywhere in that vicinity deer hair and even cow's hair was collected from the tanners spun with some wool and woven into a sort of felted blanket silk grass a much vaunted product was sent back to england on the first ships and was everywhere being experimented with coarse wicking was spun from the down of the milkweed an airy feathery material that always looks as if it ought to be put to many uses yet never has seemed of much account in any trial that has been made of it End of chapter 9